All right, church. Well, if you have a Bible, please turn uh, to begin. We're going to be sort of doing a survey like we did yesterday or last Sunday. But to begin, please open to Joshua 24. Joshua 24. So where are we today in this, in this series? We're talking about the family, and we're drawing uh, to the end of that section. I believe it'll be this sermon and one more. What I hope was clear from the text, text that we saw last week is that God has given the responsibility of the discipleship of children to the fathers, to heads of households, to the home. That it is the main place where children are to be formed and discipled, whether that is fathers or mothers or heads of households or whatever believing parent is responsible for the children. And as we think about then forming children, discipling children, what is the most important thing that we want to teach children? We certainly want to teach them to care for themselves, to provide for themselves, to be able to make a living. That is very important. We want to teach them to be honorable, respectable, upright citizens in society. That is important. We want to teach them to treat their fellow man, their neighbor, with respect and dignity. That is certainly important. But I think at the very top of the list, they need to be taught to worship God. They need to be taught to worship God. We will all worship something. They need to be trained and taught and shown how to worship God. Scott Brown, who has written a lot on this topic He says this, if the most important thing that a father needs to do is to teach his children how to worship God, then the most important part of his discipleship is family worship. If the most important thing a father is to do is to train his child how to worship God, then the most important part of his discipleship is family worship. And that is the topic that we begin to discuss this week and Lord willing, next week, is the topic of family worship. Now, for some of you, I understand this might be a a new term, something that you're unfamiliar with. It's it's not too hard to figure out what we're talking about by the the words, but it may be new to you. Uh, This was a new concept to to me about five years ago or so. Um, I came from a tradition, a Christian tradition, that didn't really talk about family worship. The emphasis was mostly on personal devotions, quiet time, which is very important. For others, this may be a a blessing that has been passed down to you from your parents. Maybe you practice family worship as a child, and it is a great great memory for you. My goal today is to encourage, really. This is not going to be a normal sort of exegetical sermon where we look at one text Um, We're going to be all over the place, but I want to encourage you. I want to encourage those that are already doing family worship to to press on and to see that that is a worthwhile commitment, that the sacrifices you've made are good sacrifices that God will often use to bear much fruit. I want to encourage those that have tried and failed, that have started and stopped and started and stopped, and all of the stuff of life just seems to always get in the way. I want to encourage you to make that commitment, to press on in this blessed endeavor. And I want to encourage those that maybe are completely unfamiliar with this idea 
of family worship. And listen, don't check out on me. When I say families, if there's two in your home, you have a family, right, that can gather together for the worship of God, whatever that might look like. And all of us ought to worship God privately, right, in our personal devotions, in our prayer closet. We're talking about something a bit more than that, a next step. So what I want to do today is first try to see, is this even something found in the Bible? You're not going to find the words family worship. And some would say, well, then it's not in there. Forget about it, right? But I believe that the, the, the substance is certainly there. And then secondly, very practically, we'll just try to ask the question, what is it? What is it? What do we do in family worship? So I'm going to begin in Joshua 24, just to sort of get us started. Um, this is the word of the living God, Joshua 24, 14. 24, 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, we do ask your spiritual blessing, that your spirit would be poured out today, that you would own this message. Keep me from anything that is unbiblical, that is folly, that, is, uh, that, that, that exalts me. And we pray that you would be exalted, that the worthiness of Christ would be understood uh, in the context of worship in our homes. So use this, I pray, God, as an encouragement to the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. So goes the family, so goes the church, so goes the nation. That's a paraphrase of a statement that was penned by Richard Baxter, English Puritan, in the 1600s. And he was pointing out then that the spiritual state of the family impacts the spiritual state of the church, which impacts the spiritual state of the nation. And where there is spiritual decay in the family, it will bear fruit in the rest of society. That same century, in 1677, a document is put together, what we often call the 1689, or the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Second London. And, and they said these words in the preface, in the opening statement of that Confession of Faith. In this backsliding day... We might not spend our breath in fruitless complaints of the evil of others. Anybody guilty of that? Griping about the sin of everybody else? Everyone else is evil? All of them out there are a mess? I think we all do that every now and then. But may everyone begin at home to reform in the first place our own hearts and our own ways. They go on, and verily there is one spring and cause of the decay of religion in our day, which we cannot but touch upon and earnestly urge a correction, and that is the neglect of the worship of God in families to those to whom the charge has been committed. 
Now, 350 years ago or so, 300 some odd years ago, these particular Baptists saw that the reason for the spiritual decay of the country they lived in, which was England, was because family worship had was dying out, was neglected. It did not begin in the home. And if it's not happening in the home, it's not going to then filter out into the other environments. If that was true then, if that was a concern then, what might we say about today? As I think in many ways this practice has been completely lost in most evangelical traditions in the church, certainly not all, but the majority. And how might God's blessings be poured out if this great practice was renewed? Matthew Henry, who wrote on this topic as well, another Puritan author, says here in the family, here the Reformation must begin. It has to begin in the homes, in families. As I said earlier, the words family worship do not appear in the Bible. And for some, that is enough to say that we ought not do it if the words don't appear. But there are a lot of words in the Bible that we use and believe that are not in Bible, such as the word Trinity or the word Bible. The words are not there, but the concept certainly is. I believe that the pattern of worship in the context of families is all throughout Scripture. So we're going to begin today with a survey of the Bible. You might say a a biblical theology of family worship, just a tracing chronologically, canonically through the Bible and to see worship of God in the context of families. So we'll begin at the beginning. Turn there, if you would, to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he, the Lord, had no regard. So we go all the way back to the third and fourth person on the earth, right? The first two sons of Adam and Eve. And as soon as they come on the scene, what do we find happening? We find them worshiping God, offering a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, certainly worship in the Old Testament looks a bit different than worship now in the new after the cross. But certainly we see them here offering a sacrifice to God. Now, we might ask the question, who taught them to do this? Who told them that it was right to come and bring an offering to the Lord. I suppose that some might say that that men just know this through general revelation, that because creation confesses that there is a God, because the light of nature in our hearts tells us that there's a God, we understand that we should bring something to the the deity. I'm sure you could 
you could say that to some degree. We know there's a God. We know that, that we ought to do something to say that we're unworthy. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that his father taught him. They learned from their parents. Right? It was Adam that told Eve not to eat of the tree because God had told Adam not to eat of the tree. And regardless, if Adam told them or not, what we see from the very beginning is in the context of this family that there is worship of God taking place. And it continues like this. Uh, if you look at the end of that chapter, we see in verse 26 that uh, Eve is given another son named Seth. And to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. They began to call upon the name of the Lord. The worship of Yahweh becomes a common practice at this point. And we see this now in Genesis chapter 8 with Noah. Noah has been in the ark. His family has been preserved from God's judgment that has been poured out on the entire earth. God is basically recreating the earth, starting over with one family, giving them the very same charge that he gave to Adam to be fruitful and to multiply. And we read in Genesis 8, verse 18, that Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So Noah, the moment that his feet hit dry ground, the first thing that he does is he erects an altar and offers a burnt offering, a sacrifice to Yahweh. Now, it doesn't say explicitly that his family was there by his side. But if we consider life in the Old Testament, in this patriarchal system, the family was a unit. And if God had just delivered his family for a year or so in this ark, and now the ark is, is beached, and they finally get on dry land, and he says, I'm going to praise and worship the God that just saved us, and he goes off by himself and his family is somewhere doing whatever they want, seems a bit strange in light of how we see families function in the Old Testament. When the family was to, or when the Passover was to be observed, that was a family affair. The children were there. They were to be taught to remember what God had done. When Abraham was, was told to circumcise himself and all of his male family members and servants, they all came and they obeyed him and they did this act because he instructed them to. So it would seem strange that Noah's family would not be here with this first sacrifice that they offer as they are delivered out of God's judgment. This trend continues in Genesis chapter 12. We, we here meet a man named Abram, who will eventually, of course, be named Abraham. God will change his name in Genesis 12, verse 5, it says there that Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, 
to the oak of Morah, and that at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham, or Abram, and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Beginning to see this pattern of worship of the fathers in these texts leading their families in worship. Again, it would seem very strange to me that Abram would be called, that God would appear and speak to him and tell him, I'm going to give your descendants this land and that he would raise up an altar and not have his wife by his side as they worship the God that had just revealed himself and spoken to him. Genesis 13, just the next chapter, verse two. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev and as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made the altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. As Abram's traveling, everywhere he stops, he builds an altar to God and he sets up a place of worship to give God praise and glory, to set that standard, as Joshua would say, for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. You may remember a number of weeks back, we looked briefly at Genesis 18, 19. Genesis 18, 19. It says there, God is speaking, for I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. So God is is saying that he had instructed Abraham to do this very thing, to worship him, certainly, and to instruct his children that they would follow him in this practice. Well, let's look then at Genesis 26, verse 23, and we see his son Isaac now. Genesis 26, 23. From there, he went up to. Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. What do we see here? We see God renewing his covenant with Abraham, with his son Isaac. And we see Isaac then doing what he had seen his father do. God blessed his father and his father would call upon the name of the Lord and build an altar and offer sacrifices to God. So here is Isaac having been taught by his father how to worship, doing the very thing that he saw Abraham do. Let me just stop there for a second. How many things... Of, of us, of our character, do we pass down to our children? I think we pass down a lot of stuff to our kids. And part of the frustrating, maybe this is just my experience, the stuff that gets passed down is the stuff that we don't want to get passed down, right? 
It's the stuff that you didn't want to see in your children, right? And sometimes it's so frustrating because, oh, that's, that's, that's my sin. That's my anger. That's my attitude. They're picking that up. Whether it's coping mechanisms or, or, or anger issues or character flaws, they pick up the things that we do. We pass down the things that we do, right? So if, if, a, if a dad was an angry person, you're passing that down. If you're a loving person, you're passing that down. And so here, if you're a worshiper of Yahweh, devoted and committed to him, then Lord willing, that worship practice is being passed down to the children. Isaac saw his father worship the Lord. And he did the same thing. God appeared to him spoke to him, renewed the covenant that he had made with his dad, and he knew what to do. He had seen it before. He set up an altar, and he worshiped there. He sacrificed there. What an amazing thing that it is for a child to see in the home that when life is hard, trials come, that my family, we gather, and we call upon the name of the Lord. That when we're rejoicing, and there's been some windfall of blessing. We gather and we call upon the name of the Lord and we glorify him. We don't just go to him when life stinks, but when life is good, we want to praise him and give him thanks. What a blessing that it is, as you saw that in your home, Lord willing, and your children now are seeing that in their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. Let's look at Job. We looked at this text at one point. I know a lot of these passages are, uh, we've, we've seen them recently, but they're, they paint an overall picture of a pattern throughout the Bible. Job chapter 1. And Job is sort of the consummate picture of the, the father as a priest over his home, as an intercessor. Job chapter 1 in verse 4, so these men are sort of wealthy, right, Job and his family. He has many goods. And in verse 4, his sons used to go to and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So we have this rich family. His children are grown. They have their own homes. They apparently are well to do. And they often gather and feast together. They have fellowship together and they invite one another to each person's home. And they enjoy themselves, and they eat much food. And it says, when these things run their course, Job sends for his children. <clears throat> they come, and he consecrates them, and he offers sacrifices on their behalf. Did you see why? It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is proactive sort of worship, right? This is... This is getting ahead of the game. It's not that his children are falling apart, and now it's time to plead with the Lord. 
But he says it may very well be that one of them has sinned in their hearts. And so just in case, he appeals to them. And apparently this has been a thing because as adult children, they still come to him. And it says, thus Job did continually. This is a pattern of consistency, a practice that they have been involved in for some time. Joshua 24, I read it when we began. I want to read it again. It's a very helpful text, I think, here. Joshua 24. I know we're, we're, we're jumping around today. I want to paint a large picture and not just give one example. Joshua chapter 24 and verse 14. Therefore, now, fear the Lord. Fear Yahweh and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away, he says, the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. This is a call to forsake idolatry, to turn from the paganism and the ungodliness of their fathers, of their parents, and to serve Yahweh. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that they served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Now, interesting story here that, that Joshua is the leader of the nation at this point, right? He took over for Moses. He was sort of the general of Moses' army. He took over for Moses when Moses died. And Joshua is around 100 years old. At this point, he has led the Israelites into the promised land. They've received the land that God promised to give them. He's really fulfilled his calling and his purpose that God laid before him. Remember all the way back in Joshua 1, where he's charging him there. Be strong and very courageous. I will be with you along this journey. And he'll here, by and large, they fulfilled this journey, his calling. He's following in the footsteps of Moses. And as he stands before the people, what is his highest priority? What is his greatest burden? It is the right worship of the people and the right worship of his own family. Choose this day, he says, whom you will serve. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that word serve is often rendered worship in the Old Testament. So he speaks here certainly of a commitment to serve God, but also of a commitment of spiritual devotion to God. You must choose whom you will serve. And that charge, that call, really hasn't changed today. Right? You and I must choose whom it is that we will serve. Notice Joshua doesn't say, choose if you will serve. He says, who you will serve. And just like this charge here, really the call of Christ to repent and believe is a call to forsake idolatry. It is a call to turn from every other false god, whether it be the god of self, the god of pleasure, the god of power, the god of money, some other pagan, foreign, false deity, whatever it is. The call goes out to you today as you sit in this pew. Whom will you serve? Do you serve Christ? Have you entrusted your eternal soul 
into His hands? Are you believing in Him in faith alone, not trusting in anything that you do? You will serve someone. May it be the Lord. The last Old Testament passage I want to look at is Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. And this book will be important as we talk about our relation to the government, to the state, when we get there. So Daniel 6, verse 10. Daniel knew that the document had been signed. Now, what is this document? An edict was just signed by the king that no one could pray to anyone but the king for 30 days. And Joshua just got news that there was a law of the land. Do not pray to any deity other than the king. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Apparently, he didn't think much of the king's edict, right, of the king's law to not pray. He was obeying God and not men as God commands us to pray. He didn't do anything showy. He did what he always did. He opened up his window, he turned towards Jerusalem, and he prayed three times a day. Now, I I read that text. We don't see a family context here, but what we do see is patterned worship. Three times a day, morning, midday, and evening, Daniel saw fit to pray to his God. It wasn't a haphazard sort of thing whenever he had a need or felt like it, but he was consistent and routine as he pleaded with the Lord. Last text I want to look at is in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. That's, that's 2. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. What a, what a blessing this picture is of, a, the, a, of three generations of worshipers. Three generations of worshipers, the faith being passed down from grandmother to mother and then to young Timothy. And let me just pause here for a moment and say, look at these faithful women. Look at these faithful women that saw fit to teach Timothy the word. I just wanted to say, let this text be an encouragement to you if your home is anything less than ideal, if your situation is not maybe what you might hope that it would be, if the husband is not physically or spiritually present in this endeavor, we see here that grandmother and the mother took charge. They trained their grandson and son in the word. His 
faith was handed down. Certainly, he saw them worship. And just as an aside, um, there's, a, there's a painting that I came across. I shared this somewhere by, by Rembrandt, I think. If, maybe if you have deep pockets, you can buy it and put it in your house. But it's called Timothy, I think is the name. And it's a little scraggly kid, a Greek kid. He has red hair because he was half Greek, sitting at the knee of his Jewish grandmother. And she's got the scripture in her lap. And she's this old lady, and he's sort of there getting acquainted with the Scripture. It's a really neat painting. But they saw fit to train this young man. And we see the fruit. If we turn the page to 2 Timothy 3, in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So Timothy has been acquainted with the scripture from his childhood, from young age. And look at the fruit that it has bore. He has been called into the ministry. He is a pastor, one of the pastors in the church at Ephesus. And we see then, I hope that you are seeing this pattern throughout the Bible. Worship in the context of a family with instruction to teach children and pass down the faith and to pass down the practice of worship. Now, this may seem obvious. I think it's worth stating. The things that we do are the things we pass down. The things that we do are the things that we pass down. And the things that we do not do will not be passed down to our children. If we tell them how important this is, but they never have seen us do it, they're very unlikely to follow in our footsteps. I mean, that's, I think that's somewhat obvious. So what is family worship? What are we even talking about? Well, don't hear me today say that we ought to go in our backyard and set up an altar and get a sheep or a goat or a bull and like we've seen and sacrifice that would be out of place in new covenant worship christ is our sacrificial lamb basically family worship is partaking of the means of grace in the context of a household it's making the home a little church and doing the things that we do in church with rugrats running around doing that very thing as you try to wrangle them every night, but praise be to God for the glorious work of rearing children. Matthew Henry said that all households ought to be little churches. And what is a church in his eyes? It's a society of believers gathered together to worship and praise God. Family worship is not that different from worship in our homes. And I, and I seek to be, for the rest of this sermon, just really practical. If this is new to you, just what do we do in family worship? What does it look like? Really, it's just the major elements of church worship. The word, prayer, and praise, or singing. So firstly, you sing. You sing. The Psalms or hymns. Psalm 150, verse 6, one of the very final verses of the Psalter. I think the second to last. Don't quote me on that. But Psalm 150, verse 6 says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. 
And when I tie that verse in with Joshua 24, 15, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That means our houses are a house of praise. Led by the head of the household. Ephesians chapter 5. Now these are instructions to the church, but I think we can certainly make application to the lives of believers. Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. So in family worship, there ought to be a time of, of singing. Children or no children, if there are two or more people in your home, you have a family. If it's just you on your own, you're single or what have you, you have the opportunity for private worship. I encourage every family to have family hymnals, every Christian to have hymnals in your home. I know hymnals are sort of out of style today, right? They're going out in many circles. We have all the technology and, and all of that, but we have a rich heritage of hymnody from all generations, not just today, not just the 1900s, not just the 1800s, but there's a richness in hymns. And if you don't know how to use a hymnal, you don't sing out of a hymnal, do what we did when we started. We put on YouTube with words on the screen and we sang and we made a playlist for family worship and the kids got to pick a song. We liked that song. Play, let's sing that song. The point is singing to Christ. Now consider the picture this paints for little ones as they grow up from birth, seeing their parents sing of Christ, sing of the gospel, sing of the resurrection, sing of the incarnation, sing of the trials and tribulations of life, but yet it is well with my soul. Seeing in their father a willingness to not be prideful and and to whatever it might be, but to sing with his heart and mother, to sing with her heart and grandmother, grandfather, whoever it may be, to see in their parents a willingness to sing to the Lord and to sing of the Lord. And maybe for you, this was your experience. You grew up in a home where Christ-exalting hymns were sung, where worship music was played. You grew up hearing your mother, your grandmother, your father singing of the Lord Jesus, singing to you in your crib, Jesus loves me, this I know. I don't know that song because it wasn't sung to me when I was a kid. I know the beginning of it. What a blessing that is, though, to hear Christ sung in our homes. And what an impact I believe it has on children to see their parents singing of the Lord. Music does something to the soul, does it not? It speaks to the soul in a different way than just reading words on a page. And we have an opportunity to introduce deep uh, devotional truth to our kids through songs, through singing. So in family worship, you sing. Get a hymnal out, turn on YouTube, and sing of Christ. Secondly, the Word of God. The Word of God must be central, just like it is in church. We read last week in Deuteronomy 6, Moses instructed there, or God did really, 
these words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Colossians 3.16, I just read, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly, that comes through consistency, right? That comes through reading broadly, through reading narrative and poetry and epistles and an apocalyptic genre, reading the books of the Bible that are challenging for you. Not just the ones that we love, whatever that might be, whatever you prefer, but that we would read canonically from Genesis to Revelation. So in family worship, we ought to read the Bible. I know that's probably a given. Um, This part certainly is going to vary greatly. If it's just a husband and a wife, then you can read a decent amount of Scripture. If you have little ones in the home, then it's going to be a much shorter text of Scripture. Read the Bible. Explain the Bible. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, there's a lot of times, Pastor, that I just don't, don't get it. I don't know what to say. I'm reading the prophets and God is pouring out judgment upon a nation. And I say, how do I how do I give something good out of this? How in the world? What do I do with this text? I I have a stack today of resources for anyone that is willing to take these home. I've given most of these out previously to those that were willing to receive them. Um, But this book right here is called a family worship Bible guide. This is two paragraphs on every single chapter of the Bible. So when you read Zephaniah 12 and you're saying, what do I what do I do with this? How do I make bring this? How do I apply this? This is a gospel centered, Christ centered, excellent work. It has two paragraphs, two thoughts on every single chapter of the entire Bible. We use it all the time. It's a great blessing. And it's not for little tiny kids. You actually have to kind of bring it down sometimes to the littlest one's levels because it's very rich. Um, I have a stack of resources. I'll be at the door. They're free. Please, if you'll use them, take them and and benefit. So I want to be practical. What do we do? My home is far from perfect. Um, What we do now, Lord willing, praise God that Erica's home, we have family worship morning and evening. In the morning, we read about five or ten verses. We sing a hymn. We pray. We start our day. Dad goes to work. The family does what they do. In the evening, it's a little bit longer. But the idea there is to read the Scripture and explain the Scripture to your wife, to your children, to your grandchildren. Again, imagine 18 years of Bible reading with a little one from birth, growing up on the Bible. Praise God, some of you here had that upbringing. You were brought up in the Word from birth. Imagine the impact that from birth, I would remember that every night my dad would open up the scripture, a TV show, a game on television, a sporting event, a night out was not the priority, but God's word would be the priority in our home, that they would see that for 18 plus some odd years. Imagine the familiarity the little ones will have with the word as you walk through the scriptures day after day, week after week, year after year. If I can just encourage you, gentlemen, you don't have to write a sermon. Take my uh, troubles and trials walking through family worship, ending in tears often, frustration on everyone's part, kids going crazy, teenagers uninterested, dad frustrated. Be simple, be brief, 
but open up the word and give it to your family. I believe this is best done twofold. Reading and explaining God's word and then walking through a catechism. You've seen, I hope you're beginning to see the value, the truth that is being deposited in the hearts and minds of our little ones in this church. We're 32 questions in, and I, it's at least every single week that I'm using the catechism when Charlotte asks a question to apply the truth, and she's familiar with it now. Every time, it's easy to bring up a question. So get a catechism. I'm giving you three today, if you will take one. You can follow along with us in this little one for kids. Any adult would be blessed to have this memorized. You think it's, it's just too simplistic? It's nice, easy answers to questions that you get asked apologetically. This is another one, milk for little ones, similar to the children's one. And this is the Baptist catechism, sort of the, the adult size meal. Um, you could read through these on your own, in your family. Just walk through them. The London Baptist Confession of Faith. Read a paragraph every night. Look up the, the scripture references. You'll have a whole system, a biblical system of truth found in these documents. Incredible blessing. Lastly, we pray. You pray, right? Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. Isaac called upon the name of the Lord over and over. Daniel got on his knees, prayed to Yahweh. Family worship involves prayer. Confess your sin before your family. Give thanks to God for his many blessings. Pray for the souls of your children earnestly. Contend with God for their very lives, for their hearts. Pray for your wife, for her sanctification, that she might have more joy and hope in Christ. Take your family before the throne of grace. Call upon the mercies of God. Pray for your home. Pray for your own leadership before your family, your own godliness. Confess your shortcomings and failures. Pray that your family would more glorify God and serve Him well. Daniel prayed to the Lord three times a day. I personally believe everyone's schedule is different. A blessing is morning and evening prayer. If you can get up praying to God, petitioning God for help for the day, and go to bed praying to God, praising Him for His blessings, asking Him for help, it's a great witness to our children of the dependence that we have on the Lord, that we don't have it all figured out. We need God just as much as them. So what do we do? What do you do? You sing a hymn, you read some scripture, walk through a catechism, pray, and go on with your day. Aim for brevity and aim for simplicity. I hope this was some encouragement. Uh, please don't hear in this teaching a legalistic burden. I hope that you hear a wonderful joy, an incredible blessing and stewardship that we have with our kids. If we could pass down one thing, would it be the worship of the triune God of Scripture? What greater thing could they learn from mom and dad than the worship of God. When we're excited and we're blessed, we go to God. When times are low, we go to God. When we're in need, we go to God. We cannot save them, but we can teach them 